Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Come on in if you're still filing in. Take your seats. We're going to get started. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Ryan McKnight, and I will be your host this morning. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, the people were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In the spirit of this command, we have entitled this seminar, Let the Children Come. Now, we're here to discuss some difficult topics, abortion, contraception, and the priority of adoption. The issues covered today are sensitive and highly controversial. And we are not all in agreement about how Christians should respond to each of these controversies. I expect that there are some in our audience who have well-formed and very deeply held beliefs about these topics. Others might consider themselves uncertain and are willing to listen to different perspectives and ideas on the topics. We are here today to engage these topics, not to reach final conclusions. As an organizational matter, Please know that multiple Houston area churches have joined together to present this seminar, and there is not a unified consensus among us on all of these issues. Our goal is not to present one church's official stance or to critique that of another. Rather, our purpose this morning is to engage respectfully in a clarifying discourse, to hear experts present their information and offer guidance and direction from a Christian perspective and for each of us to perhaps take one step further in our own pursuit of truth and obedience. And to that end, we ask that you remain respectful of one another and attempt to listen to our guests. We're very fortunate to host speakers who are not only experts in their respective fields, but who are also committed Christians. A few things to know up front. Uh, first, the content that we're covering today is weighty, but you will not be subjected to disturbing or especially graphic images. That said, if you would like to pray or speak with someone about these topics, we will have a team of lay counselors in the lobby during intermissions, both male and female. Um, they will be located uh, here in the front, and they will have yellow lanyards on if you need someone to talk with or pray with. And second, we will be accepting text-in questions for our experts for a Q&A session that will conclude the seminar. During the intermissions, we will present the number on the screen behind me where you can text in these questions, and we encourage you to do so. Now, with that said, I would like to introduce to you our first speaker today, Dr. Megan Best. Dr. Megan Best is a medical doctor, a bioethicist, and the professor of medical ethics in Sydney, Australia. She is the author of Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Ethics and the Beginning of Human Life. Based on historical, biblical, and medical research, Dr. Best will be speaking on the topics of abortion and contraception. Please welcome Dr. Best. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Why don't I just pray before we start? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to... Um, consider this very important topic that we know is close to your heart, and we do pray that you will give us minds to be open to the things you want to teach us and hearts that are willing to change. Amen. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it's very exciting to be here, and I'm um, delighted that you all got up early this morning to come along. 
I come from Sydney, Australia. I was going to show you a beautiful picture of Sydney Harbour. I, the church um, that I come from is called Church by the Bridge, and it's right at the, um, the bottom of the, one of the pylons of uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And it, uh, I bring greetings from my church as well. Um, uh, I live in a, a Sydney, Australia with my husband, two daughters, and uh, one of my daughters has just moved in with her husband and her two bulldogs while they sell their own house. Um, we had a holiday here just a few years ago, and at, actually one of my daughters is in Dallas at the moment visiting a girlfriend. And uh, it's been a delight for me to understand everyone because I thought all Texans talk like this. <laughs> but it, I hope you can understand me. So, let's, oh, there they are. Yes, that's my family. That's Peppy up the back. And Australia, I actually was able to come this way. It's not quite as far away from America as, as that. And our church is just here. So it's, I get this wonderful trip across the bridge, seeing the harbour every Sunday morning. Okay, here we go. Is it ever right to have an abortion to create test tube babies through IVF? What about the morning after pill? We believe in a God who is sovereign over all areas of life. It's only through his son Jesus that we can know the Father. And Jesus told us that the way we demonstrate our love for him is by obeying his teaching, John 14, 21. If we don't think through everything in life under the lordship of Christ, we are at risk of becoming functional unbelievers. We'll say the right things on Sunday, but not live it out during the week. Now, I'm focusing on the example of contraception today, but the principles will apply to everything we do. In all our decision-making, even in our medical decision-making, we should consider what will give glory to God. We therefore need to shape our lives by God's word, the Bible. And what I'm aiming to do in this seminar is to demonstrate how we can equip ourselves to be able to do so when we think through our contraceptive choices. We need to train ourselves partly because we live in a technological society. Technology aims to make things faster, easier, more comfortable. And that's not all bad. I, for one, am very thankful for the development of automatic washing machines. But as a result of the modern technological revolution, man believes that he can be in control of his destiny if only he has the determination to do what's needed. He believes that he can prolong his life and control the number of his children. And this shouldn't surprise us. It's an attitude we've seen repeatedly since the Tower of Babel. So what's controlling your life? Do you think through all your decisions in line with God's word? Or just go with the flow. You will need to make some decisions. Inevitably, there will be some clash of values between the Christian and modern society. This is becoming more and more evident as time goes on. And as a result of that clash, if we want to live authentic Christian lives which honour God's values, it's possible that sometimes we need to go against the flow. We will not fall in with modern practices. We'll examine things carefully 
and if necessary, do things differently. At times that will be hard. Physicians will think you're a nuisance. Um, It's always hard to be different, but we are the people of God and we should look different. And when we live out the kingdom's values, we bring glory to God. Now, I know that some Christians don't like to look at their decisions this carefully. Uh, Maybe with some of these health decisions like contraception, you think, oh, well, the doctor, the physician decides that, not me. Or perhaps they're scared by the tough questions. Or perhaps they're scared of the answers, which suggest they might need to change. Nonetheless, I think this is an important task, even though, as Ryan has said, this can be a very difficult area for some people. I think it's necessary because it encompasses issues that will affect the whole of our lives when or if we have children. And not only are the issues emotional, but uh, in John 17, Jesus tells us that our primary opponent is the evil one. And while we think we might be wrestling with technology, in fact, we're wrestling with the spiritual powers of darkness. It's spiritual warfare. And as Jesus Christ has called us to be salt and light in the corruption of our generation, it's important that we think biblically about things like contraception. I think it's helpful for all Christians for several reasons. First of all, when you learn about sort of the background, the science of things like this, you can make good decisions for yourself in your own life. Secondly, it's very helpful when you talk to other people, whether someone comes to you for counsel or perhaps with your non-Christian friends and family. It helps you get past the small talk to talk about what's really important. And thirdly, if we are going to be salt and light, we need to have a voice in the public square and uh, we need to be informed about these topics um, uh, to be able to have some influence on public debate and uh, and legal decision-making. So I think uh, if we really want to protect those most vulnerable of human beings, the unborn, uh, we need to think about the question, how do we approach this whole topic as Christians? Now, we need to go back many years to understand how we got to this point in society where it's okay to abort children up to the time they're born, to discard embryos in IVF. How did we get to the point of of just thinking that human life was so dispensable. Now, in a lot of bioethical debates, it's a bit harder um, than some other debates in that we need to understand the science to know what's actually being done before we can make an informed ethical decision. So today we're going to start off with a biology lesson. So we're all on the same page about how human beings develop. Then I'll talk about the ethical arguments that have occurred in our society to bring us to where we are today, and then I'll consider what the Bible has to say about this topic. So this is a cross-section of the human uh, reproductive system. Uh, This is how the majority of us are conceived. The the ovary um, releases an egg, which will go down the fallopian tube to implant in the uterus or the womb. And if there is a sperm coming up, um, you can get a fertilization of the egg around here and it will travel and and then implant. This is how the majority of us are conceived. 
Human conception begins with fertilization of an egg by a sperm, which creates a single cell called a zygote. Now, the, the actual name for the female gamete is oocyte. Uh, egg is a more culinary term, but I'm going to use it today because it's familiar. From this point on, development is a continuum through pregnancy and childhood to adulthood. All the DNA or genetic material needed for the full, mature human being is present in this one cell. Um, so in embryology terms, in that one cell we have a member of the species Homo sapiens. Cell organisation begins immediately, even before the genome is activated. Over 10 years ago, a research uh, team in the UK found that um, the orientation of the embryo is, is decided when the sperm first goes into the egg. So uh, we know that the, the whole cell, the organisation of the cell is decided right from the very beginning when the sperm goes through the wall of the egg. So we're not dealing with what is often called just a clump of cells or just a bit of tissue. Beware of the language used in this debate because it's often used to misdirect public opinion. The first cell division occurs within 24 hours of conception and cellular division continues while the embryo travels down the fallopian tube towards the uterus. By this time, it will be comprised of four different types of cell, four types of tissue. You can see them in each uh, tissue is a different colour. And this will sort of separate into what becomes the embryo and what becomes the placenta. On day five or six, we get what's called a blastocyst. This is like a hollow ball of cells with a clump of cells in the inside, and that's where the embryonic stem cells come from. Uh, week, at the end of the first week, uh, implantation begins, where the embryo attaches to the wall of the uterus, uh, the, the womb of the mother, and it begins to be nourished uh, by the mother's blood supply. Sadly, this doesn't always occur successfully, in which case you would have a very early miscarriage. Week three, the future spinal cord begins to develop and heart tubes begin to fuse. The embryo's own blood cells uh, begin to be produced. Week four, the embryo measures just one-eighth of an inch in length, but its own heart starts to beat at a regular rhythm. Development of the brain, thyroid, eyes and ears begins. You once looked like that. Week five, there's continued development of eyes. The mouth, nose, sinuses, lungs, arms, hands and legs begin to grow. The embryo's own blood supply starts to circulate. In week six, the embryo measures one quarter of an inch in length. We have beginning of formation of the feet, ears, nipples and bones. We have continued development of the face and the brain. Arms and legs have lengthened with foot and hand areas distinguishable which have digits, so they may still be webbed. Week seven, the embryo measures a half of an inch in length. The trunk lengthens and straightens. The upper limbs are longer and bent at the elbow. The kidneys start to develop. Elbows and toes are visible and the limbs move spontaneously. In week eight, the embryo measures one and one quarter inch in length. The facial features continue to develop with eyelids and ears taking shape. The head is more rounded. The beginnings of all essential external and internal structures are present. 
you can see that even while we're still in the embryonic stage, an enormous amount of development has taken place. Now, at eight weeks, we stop calling it an embryo and start calling it a fetus. And at three months, the fetus reaches just over three inches in length. The face and body are now formed and all organs are beginning to function. They just need to mature for the remainder of the pregnancy. At four months, tooth enamel is developing and the pregnant woman can detect fetal movement. The fetus is producing its own hormones and by now, the baby can feel pain. Some researchers suggest that the baby can feel pain as early as 17 weeks, but definitely by 24 weeks. And babies as young as 22 weeks can now survive outside the womb in developed countries. At five months, the baby may develop hiccups from swallowing too much amniotic fluid, and the two sides of the brain begin to differentiate asymmetrically. At six months, hair begins to grow. Gas exchange is possible in the lungs. The sense of smell is functioning. The the eyes can detect light and produce tears. Eight months, things are getting a bit squashy in there. And by nine months, we hope for a healthy baby to be born. Now, I don't think that many people would disagree that a newborn baby is a human being who deserves care. So my question is, if this is a human, when did it stop being a human so that it was okay to just discard it? Embryologists, the specialist in the development of the human embryo, agree that there is no doubt that in biological terms we're dealing with a human being from the time of fertilisation. What they say is that as everything it needed to grow was present in that one cell and it directed its own development since then, it would be arbitrary to say that human life began at any time after fertilisation So that is, biologically, when the sperm and egg joined, human life began. But despite the unequivocal scientific fact that human beings exist from the very first cell, we now live in a world where medical technology does not always operate within a framework where unborn humans are valued and protected. Instead, unborn humans are at times seen as a resource to use rather than a gift to cherish. So how did this happen? How did we get to this point? How has the public addressed the question of how we treat unborn human beings in the 21st century? Well, traditionally, the debate has been argued from two opposing positions, the pro-life and the pro-choice. I know you're very familiar with... um, these terms over here. The pro-lifers generally uh, maintain that every person has a right to life, but those holding the pro-choice position generally argue for what they call reproductive rights, the right for the woman to have control over her body. And they, they tend to downplay the humanity of the fetus in order to protect the right to abortion. So at the centre of the public debate is disagreement over whether developing humans deserve to be protected. 
in informed debate, we no longer really have to argue about whether we're dealing with a human being. The question now is, does this little human being have a right to legal protection? And the disagreement can most easily be understood when we consider the different ways of defining the embryo. Now, as we've seen, there is no doubt in biological terms that we're dealing with a human being from the time of fertilization. The embryo from the time it's created is a unified, unique, dynamic, self-directed whole. This is not even vaguely controversial in scientific terms. But if there's no doubt biologically that a human embryo is indeed human, how is its wanton destruction justified? This question is generally discussed in terms of the philosophical definition. People who come from the pro-choice position have suggested that legal protection is only due to human persons and that you're not a person just because you're a human being. Let me explain. This is quite a complex um, idea. But traditionally, it was believed that what made human beings different from all the animals was our ability to reason, to be able to think things through. A human person was someone who could reason. Therefore, it was considered that all human beings um, were human persons. And this is certainly the view that's been held for most of human history. Until recently, it would have been inconceivable to think that there was a human being who was not a human person. The definition of personhood underwent a change last century when political expediency intervened. In 1954, a minister who was fighting to legalise abortion published a book to argue that unborn humans weren't human persons. Joseph Fletcher wanted to legalise abortion and obviously if an embryo wasn't a human person, then abortion would be much easier to justify. He wrote that a human person must not merely have the potential to reason, but be able to exercise it at the time. This wasn't based on any new scientific information. It was just driven by the political debate around abortion. And Fletcher went on to argue that if the human embryo was not a human person, then it didn't merit legal protection. He argued that not only embryos and fetuses but also newborn infants would be classed as non-persons. And he explicitly accepted that infanticide or the killing of infants would be justifiable on these grounds. You see how dangerous this thinking is. Along these lines, many modern philosophers have proposed theories regarding the point at which personhood begins or when independent moral status is acquired. This would indicate when legal protection is deserved. So, um, this is just a little pause. I got too far ahead of myself. Here we go. So um, we've got people saying that, as I would say, uh, life begins at fertilisation. Some people, I'll talk about this more a bit later, um, say it's an implantation. Um, we'll talk about why some people choose 12, 14 days in a moment. In the olden days, um, quickening was when the mother could first feel that the baby kicking in her tummy, and that was um, the, the sign that there really was a baby there. Um, 
Some places they say that uh, life, that legal protection is due when a baby uh, is able to survive outside the womb. This is the original Roe versus Wade made this decision. Some people would say birth, and then some people like Fletcher's idea um, say after birth. There are some philosophers in the medical literatures that say every parent should be given a couple of weeks after the baby's born to decide if they want it or not, and that it should be legal to put that baby to death um, if they change their mind. Some people would even say you don't deserve legal protection until you're aware of yourself as a human being. And my paediatrician friends tell me that that is about 18 months of age. So this is stuff that's being discussed in the medical literature at the moment. Um, but de debate on these competing theories continues without any sign of resolution. And this is where I give you some comic relief. So I'd say, yes, all of these are significant milestones through the development of a human. Um, but there'll be many more significant moments in the life of a human being after that. Once you go beyond fertilisation, that's all there is, the next stage of development, then the next and the next, and it's so it goes on one after another. In response to these arguments about personhood, I would suggest that surely this is an unacceptable way to decide how human beings uh, deserve protection in our legal system. Intuitively, we know that killing an infant is wrong. Traditionally, those who are unable to speak for themselves, who are vulnerable, are seen to be in more need of legal protection rather than less. And my other response is, who says that this is um, that personhood is the measure by which we decide which lives matter? Um, this is a completely artificial standard of why someone deserves legal protection, yet it's been adopted by governments all over the world. And as you know, um, laws on when abortion is legal vary enormously across the world. And um, I, I think that... Things like this just show us the whole system is quite arbitrary. It's not based on any scientific information. People make up these laws so that they can do what they want. Um, and let's move, but let's move on for a moment to talk about how treatment of human embryos have been treated with today's modern technology. Um, uh, because it's, it's uh, another thing that shows us the artificial artificiality of the whole system is that embryos are treated quite differently from fetuses. And remember, embryos are the first eight weeks of development of a human being. The idea that has most influenced the treatment of human embryos around the world is that endorsed by the Warnock Committee in the UK in 1984. The Warnock Committee was asked to advise the UK government of when and whether human embryos could be grown outside of the, the human being in the laboratory and destroyed for research. Um, they, uh, their recommendation, after a lot of deliberation, uh, was that it should be allowed up to day 14 of development. I'm really giving you a bird's eye view of all these issues. Um, I discuss them in much more depth in my first book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, if you wanted to learn more about them. But uh, Dame Warnock was a philosopher, and um, 
she uh, and her, the group of people with her said that uh, it's fine to grow human embryos outside of the laboratory, uh, but they shouldn't be allowed to grow more than 14 days. The decision has influenced policymakers around the world ever since. Interestingly, I was told that at the time this law was made, the longest anyone had ever grown a human embryo outside of the human body was 14 days. How convenient. Now, the science they used to justify their decision is completely out of date. It's based on what was known in the 1980s. Yet the Warnock Report has remained influential ever since 1984, and it's written into laws and scientific guidelines in at least 17 countries. It, I, it was um, pulled up again just a year ago in the UK to justify some of the laws they passed. Then last year, scientists in the US and the UK devised a new method by which the embryos grown outside the womb uh, can be grown for longer than ever before. And so we're starting to hear calls that the 14-day rule should become a 21-day rule. That's how these decisions are made. No doubt, you, uh, watch this space, it will be justified soon. So let's stop for a moment to see what we have as the basis for our legal decisions about the treatment of unborn human beings. Out-of-date science, very little, if any, pub public discussion of how much we know about how developed a human embryo is in those first eight weeks. Um, very little discussion of how intricately the human being is fashioned from the time of fertilisation. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as a physician, I've had women come to me and say, you know, when I went for an abortion, I was told it was just a clump of tissues. So why do I feel like I killed my baby? We also know that philosophical debates with an agenda to create an artificial... We have... A lot of these laws are based on a philosophical standard which um, creates an artificial standard of what a human being uh, must achieve before it's deserving of legal protection. And these were philosophers with an agenda. But the ethical argument that ultimately underlies this type of thinking is what we call the theory of consequentialism. The end justifies the mean. This is a way most people in our society decide what is right and wrong. They look at what the end product of their action will be, and if it's what they want, it's a good decision. If it's not what they want, it's a bad decision. Our community has decided that while the destruction of developing human beings may be seen as regrettable, the potential consequences of this destruction, the benefits such as freedom from an unwanted pregnancy, perhaps a child born through IVF, justifies the cause. But saying that you might as well destroy unwanted embryos and fetuses if that's beneficial for you depends on the idea that the human embryo is not a human person deserving of protection. It is, of course, an extension of the idea that the species Homo sapiens deserves no special treatment, that we're not special, that we're just an accident of an unguided evolutionary process. This is an argument which aims to remove God from the equation completely. But before I finish this section, 
I'd just like to say that those who support destruction of embryos in various medical technologies are not necessarily monsters who don't care what happens to unborn babies. Most of them, and certainly the ones that I've met personally, are driven by the desire to help their patients. They honestly don't believe a human being exists at this stage of development, and the reason they think that is because it was what they were taught at university. I'm going to talk about this in more depth in a moment, but just uh, to say now that there, there's been an artificial change in the definition of when human life begins in medical terms, um, and, uh, and that's why they believe what they do. But for the moment, let's just stop for a minute and think, how should Christians think about all these changes that have happened in society? Well, as you know, Christians have a moral compass, and that's the Bible. It will give us the guidance we need to make our decisions. Now, any ethical decision is made up of several steps. Motivation, intention, action and consequences. Our motivation is what prompts us to act. It's the reason why we, we decide we want to do something. Our intention involves working out what is it that we want to achieve. Action refers to what we, what we actually do, and consequences are the outcomes that develop from, as a result of what we do. God cares about all four parts of our decision-making process. He cares about our hearts, why we do things and what we're aiming to achieve, and about our actions, how we behave, and the consequences for ourselves and those around us. If you think about things like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in, in the book of Matthew chapter 5, we see that our inner thoughts are as important as what we're actually seen to do by other people. So let's go through the four steps. And I can make these slides available if someone wants um, them as notes. Jesus told us that we should be motivated by love of God and love of our neighbour, imitating Christ and displaying the fruits of the Spirit. Intention and action should both follow biblical law, showing love for God and our neighbour and aiming for the type of society God wants. And the Bible doesn't teach that consequences are all that matters, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter at all. Uh, as far as we can foresee the consequences of our actions, they should meet biblical standards. If we love our neighbour, we will care how our actions impact them. However, discerning some of these factors may not be straightforward for modern healthcare decision-making, as some of the matters we're dealing with aren't actually addressed in the Bible. We therefore need to look at the scriptures more carefully. We can learn a lot about the way God wants us to treat human beings by considering the way we've been made. The creation story in Genesis shows us that all humans are made in the image of God, and this is the basis on which we're all to be treated equally and with dignity. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Man and female he created them, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Human beings have been uniquely made in the image and likeness of God. This sets us apart from all other creatures which were made according to their kinds. We are valuable because of him. 
It's not dependent on something we can do. In contrast to the modern philosophical view that personhood must be earned, the Bible teaches that our personhood is inherent, it's inbuilt, because of the nature of the God whose image we reflect. We're to treat all human beings with respect for the whole of their lives, regardless of their particular characteristics. It's not our respect that gives them dignity. Rather, it's because they have innate dignity that we owe them respect. But when does it begin, the life of a human being? There is no key verse in the Bible which tells us exactly when life begins. I realise that this is a point of great contention in Christian circles. The Bible's not a scientific textbook. But human life certainly begins before birth, and I'll just go through the reasons why I think it begins at the very start. The Bible makes the link between conception and birth in many places, such as in Genesis 4, where Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. In some ways, it's a bit of a no-brainer. In Isaiah 46, verse 3, God speaks to Israel of you whom I've upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. And Jesus' presence on earth is described as the beginning as beginning when the virgin conceived through the Holy Spirit. For example, in, in Matthew 1. And the incarnation is a powerful reminder of the status that human embryos hold in the eyes of God. Because in order to take on true humanity, Christ had to commence life as an embryo rather than as a fully functioning human being. The Bible describes the relationship we have with God while we're still in the womb, such as during our formation. We've just heard part of Psalm 139. And uh, there's another wonderful uh, description in Job 10. These are only a sample of the verses that illustrate these points. I I look at um, other scriptures in, um, in my first book. But there's no doubt that unborn human beings are recognized in the Bible as one who is capable of a relationship with God. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that the end does not justify the means. Romans 3, 8 refutes the notion that we should do evil in order that good may result. We should not make decisions based on consequences the way the world does. And there are some direct commands in the Bible that we do need to recognise. And Exodus 20 verse 13 says we should not kill innocent human beings regardless of the consequences. It's one of the Ten Commandments and it's why abortion was illegal in our society for so long. The Bible tells us that the value of an unborn human being is based on our own understanding of morality as given to us by the God who made us. We were all once embryos too. But the basic issue at the heart of the debate remains the moral status of the embryo, whether it has a right to life. This is an issue which is highly divisive in our society. And I've already shown you some of the inconsistencies in how unborn humans are treated. There's a 14-day rule for, for embryos created for research or for IVF or for stem cells but abortion is permitted in some places up to the time of birth. Certainly we can continue to promote community debate on this topic. I think that 
that most people do feel that human embryos are different from mouse embryos or hamster embryos. But a lot of people are not quite sure why they think that. And we may have a child being aborted in one operating theatre in a hospital and a child the same age is receiving surgery in the next operating theatre for the same cause as the one who's being aborted. There's a lot of confusion in our society. And while there's no place for violence, we need to be acknowledge that these personhood debates um, are, are just something that's been created uh, to justify what a lot of people want to do in the name of technology. It's pure political expediency. But we live in a fallen world, and the only real cure for a materialistic worldview is the gospel. And failing that, how do we find consensus as a community? I would suggest that it's not possible. In the end, the moral status of the embryo is not a fact, but a value. We each of us decide what is valuable to us on the basis of our worldview. Now, those who would pursue destruction of human embryos and fetuses are considering consequences only. Those opposed are thinking about the act itself, saying that there are some things you should just never do regardless of the consequences. They will never meet because they're talking about different things. In a pluralistic society, we cannot just ignore the people dis we disagree with. Uh, we need to consider all the different views in our community and when there's no consensus, we take a vote. He with the most votes wins. So we need to keep trying to win that vote and I think that, that this is something that, that Christians should take seriously because we have a God who has great concern for the vulnerable in our society and who is more vulnerable than an unborn human. And at the same time, we need to realise that we're touching on painful issues that affect real people. But our, our message is a positive one. Let's keep saying yes to human life at every stage of development and care for this being who is fearfully and wonderfully made. You're welcome to ask any further questions and thank you very much for listening.